Welcome to Hub & Flow, a podcast produced by Natural Gas Intelligence. On a mission to provide transparency to the natural gas market, Hub & Flow focuses on key fundamentals driving the price of natural gas and LNG in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Natural Gas Intelligence, or NGI, is a subscription-based price reporting agency, which means we provide trusted and independent natural gas pricing and news for the North American market. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of NGI's Hub & Flow podcast. I'm Jamison Conklin, editor of LNG Insight, which provides subscribers with North American LNG news and pricing, plus key European and Asian fundamentals. Today, I'm joined by Anna Milkuska, a non-resident fellow in energy studies at Rice University's Baker Institute. Welcome, Anna. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Anna's research uh, focuses on the geopolitics of natural gas in the European Union, former Soviet bloc, and Russia. Uh, She's also pretty well-versed in the LNG markets and their role in European energy security. So she's a great guest to talk about escalating tensions between Russia and Ukraine and how this might impact natural gas in Europe and elsewhere. So um, Anna, I mean, can you set the stage a bit? And tell us exactly how reliant Europe is on Russia to meet natural gas demand. So Europe has a quite a dependency on Russian gas. Approximately 40% of gas that Europe is consuming comes from Russia. So that's uh, quite a lot. In particular, that there is really not enough gas from other places to replace that gas that comes from Russia, right? And that's what really dependency means. If you if you don't have other options, but one that supports uh, quite a lot of your consumption, it's approximately 10% of primary energy demand of Europe. Well, then, then that's where dependency begins. And that's where we can start thinking about, you know, both economic and geopolitical effects uh, that can flow from that dependency. Okay. Okay. And I I do want to talk a little bit more about, you know, other options the continent has for for natural gas absent Russia. But first, I mean, to go a little bit farther on some of the background here, you know, I think that we've seen the leverage, the influence Russia has on the European gas market for some time now. I mean, even before tensions with, with Ukraine reached this kind of boiling point they're at now, Russia's decision to limit additional supplies for the continent has added an element of uncertainty at a time when, you know, inventories are low and the market is already kind of tight. I mean, we saw this last year, and I don't think there's any doubt that Russia's, you know, had a role to play in some of the price volatility that's that's characterized, you know, the market lately. We, we've also heard that, that Russia does not want Ukraine joining NATO. You know, it wants NATO to cut its presence in, in Eastern Europe. But I'm interested to hear why you think Russia has went this far to mass troops and and equipment at the border like this? I mean, is this about posturing? Is maybe it's more about domestic politics in Russia? What's your take on all this? Well, kind of to go first to what you've mentioned is indeed uh, Russia has had its role that played out in that recent gas crunch in in Europe. Mm -hmm. It wasn't of the Russian making, 
it was many, many multiple factors that kind of really, you know, pushed the European prices uh, much higher. That's post-COVID demand, uh, demand other w- in Europe, but also other uh, in other places like Asia, droughts uh, and lack of hydropower in places like Brazil or Turkey, low wind uh, output in the North Sea. And you could really see that this is kind of all, you know, pushed a lot of demand for gas, both during the summer when, you know, you you would like to see more injections and later uh, in the year in 2021. And on top of this, so so Russia almost like walked into that situation that was uh, ripe for creating a little bit more chaos. And I think it kind of really used it to its advantage in many ways. So it's continued to provide contract level supply and it has underscored it many times. So whenever you could hear this, you know, this argument, oh, Russia is is, is not performing, not helping Europe with, uh, you know, supplying enough gas for a European demand. Well, Russia's response was, well, we supply whatever was contracted. You should have contracted more, but we are doing our part of the deal. So we cannot, cannot be blamed. In reality, you know, that's a very commercial uh, argument, but commercial when set up against the drawback of how Russia has behaved with regards to especially Central Eastern Europe and Ukraine in the past, Moldova in 2021 becomes a little bit more hazy in terms of what the motivations are. It's very important to note also that the way Russia has been supplying the volumes that are contracted hasn't been only from the Russian inventory. It has also been from the inventory that Russia has in has had in Europe in Gazprom control storage, particularly in Germany, Netherlands, Austria, Serbia, and Czechia. So Russia actually, or Gazprom, controls some of the storage. And part of the European story, this 2021 and the issues with gas going forward and still, is that not only there hasn't been enough gas flowing in, but also the inventories, the storage hasn't been filled to the regular levels. Right. So Europe started the heating season far below the average level in the 70s in terms of percentage of filling the storage. And it's now in this, uh, I think, 36, uh, between 36, 40 percent of the storage being filled. That's far lower than normally. And it's interesting to see where it is actually is coming from, because that deficiency in filling of the storage is actually where uh, Gazprom co-owns the storage. Russia used this, instead of injecting additional gas, this gas that was there was actually withdrawn and used to supply Russian gas contracts. And in doing so, contributing to the shortage of storage, to increasing you know, shortage of gas in Europe as the continent was preparing to winter to the heating season, as the winter temperature has started really early. And that's where you really saw the prices shot. And in addition, you ended up having these kind of really, you know, really chaotic messaging from Gazprom and Kremlin. Oh, you know, we can always add additional supply from Nord Stream 2, just allow us to start. Oh, you know, we can send it in November, no problem. We need to just fill our gas storage. Oh, maybe not yet. Well, maybe you should have you should have more long term contracts. So all this created this chaos and lack of certainty on which, you know, high prices 
thrive. And that's kind of where you see Russia really kind of, you know, stepping into already difficult situation and uh, possibly making it worse. Okay. So, I mean, given that, I mean, is it, do do you think it's fair to say that, you know, Russia has kind of seized on the situation in the gas markets and the energy markets to kind of advance its position on Ukraine a little bit? To, to an extent, I think it's it's uh, Russia is thinking, you know, well, Russia doesn't like the idea that it needs to send some of its gas through Ukraine. For whatever reason, Russia always argues that this is be- it's because Ukraine is not a reliable transit country. And that stems from, you know, early 2000s, you know, 2006, 2009, supply shortages is when there were this there were disruption in gas uh, supply to Europe because of the con- of the crisis or because of the issues that Russia and Ukraine had over debts and so on. And particularly 2009, you know, Russia was decreased the amount of gas that was sent through its pipeline via Ukraine by the amount that was for uh, that was supposed to be for Ukraine. So in theory, the European countries were supposed to get whatever they always were getting, and Ukraine was not supposed to be withdrawing any gas. In the meantime, Ukraine has siphoned some of the gas, and uh, Ukraine said it was for the maintenance purposes. But in effect, lots of countries, particularly in Southeast Europe, like Bulgaria, had real problems filling the demand. There was the end of the cold winter, actually, and and they were were actually, uh, some people were sitting cold, you know, in the cold houses because there was just not enough gas there. And that's, you know, that's, where Ukraine said, well, Russia is using energy as a weapon. And that's where Russia says, well, Ukraine is not a reliable transit. They're not supposed to be siphoning that gas. We have an issue with them. We don't have issue with others. And that's where kind of this this issue began. Russia has really pushed for establishing alternative routes of supply. Nord Stream 1 has been built, two pipelines, 55 BCM going to Europe. Actually, I think in, in it was 56 in 2001, 2021. Uh, now, not operational, but already finished and ready to go Nord Stream 2 that does not operate because it does not comply with the European uh, laws on unbundling of the pipeline and uh, natural gas that flows through it. So what's happening right now, we have seen that Europe did not allow Nord Stream 2, even though Russia has very much signaled that if Nord Stream 2 were allowed to start operations, they would provide more supply. But this didn't happen. It didn't happen for administrative reasons. It's actually German bureaucracy, courts and bureaucratic apparatus established that the pipeline was not compliant with the EU law. And then we kind of saw this rush of the Russian troops towards the Ukrainian border, what you kind of really, you know, I know you you want to get to that, like why why Russia is, you know, invading Ukraine, why we we see what, what we see. And really, you know, there's so many people thinking so ma- in so many ways on that. And I'm really careful about kind of trying to, you know, be in Putin's head and figuring out what it really is. It was already difficult to figure out why Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014 in the first place after very successful Olympics and kind of, you know, really uh, Russia becoming uh, quite likable on the international arena. And then you had ended up with an invasion of Ukraine, takeover of Crimea, Russia being sanctioned through most of the Western world. And, and kind of really, you know, a, a complete change of action. And, and, and we don't know 
why what's happening now, why we see that to an extent, I think Putin's idea of Russia in general has been that of international power has been that of one that's on the equal footing with with the US and and uh, with you know UK France increasingly now China becoming more uh, important but i also f- feel that he sees the waning of that he saw the waning of this power and tried to br- tries to bring Russia back to that position and i don't think he is succeeding really but Having other world leaders, U.S. world leader, French world leader, and so on, talking with him about, you know, how to continue a peaceful coexistence with Ukraine, how not to strike a war in Europe, provides uh, Russia with some sort of importance that otherwise possibly it wouldn't have. A sort of feeling that others need to count what they do or, you know, have to pay attention to to Russia still, that Russia has a say in the world affairs. Maybe that's that. Again, I'm not a Russian politics expert, so I would not want to, you know, kind of, I, I, I focus more on gas supplies. I don't think it's about gas supplies, really, you know, gathering of the troops. I think it's uh, more of a part of an operation where natural gas and, you know, uh, bringing up troops, kind of all the geopolitical game is is kind of, you know, uh, tied up together towards sort of a strategy that, uh, you know, probably only Vladimir Putin knows where it leads. We haven't, you know, we have so much of negotiations being done between Russia and and Ukraine within the Normandy uh, format with France and the EU involved and, and, you know, different leaders uh, moving back and forth between the two countries. And we haven't seen a resolution yet. So it's hard for me to say what really Putin wants to do or what it wants from it. But, you know, a chaos might be one <laughs> that that he might be happy with, kind of bringing chaos to the region and a lack of certainty could be uh, one of the things that is his goal. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and that's fair enough. And I, and I think a lot of people are wondering, you know, what is the exact reason for all this? But you, you did answer my question. I was kind of wondering how heavily the economics of gas and everything like that have factored into this. I, I want to go back to, to something that you said there just a, just a few moments ago. I mean, Nord Stream 2 has, has obviously been, been roped into this whole conversation in one way or another. The pipeline is complete. Just yesterday, February 7th, President Biden, uh, you know, he threatened uh, to stop Nord Stream 2 if Russia does invade Ukraine. But I mean, can the United States do that at this point? I mean, as you said, this is this this really seems to be kind of an administrative matter, a regulatory matter at this point. I mean, the pipeline is finished. So, I mean, what recourse in your eyes does the United States have to stop Nord Stream 2, if any at all? So the Biden administration didn't specify, right? What would they do? And there's still a matter of, you know, sanctions, I guess, with parties that are involved in, you know, ensuring the pipeline or in any way kind of dealing with the pipeline. And when you think about it, there is quite a lot of European companies that could be affected, actually. And being affected by U.S. sanctions, it's not a good thing for any company. We've seen, you know, that as soon as 
uh, you know, Swiss pipeline company learned that they could be affected by sanctions, they backed out right away. So there would be possibility that sanctions imposed on anybody who deals with Nord Stream 2 could significantly impair its functioning. But as you've mentioned, for now, the pipeline is actually not operating, not because of any type of geopolitical tools imposed or sanctions, but because of administrative manners. And and the German courts have decided that Nord Stream 2 has to be submitted to the European Gas Directive, which means that both ga- that gas that flows through the pipelines needs to be owned by a different entity than the entity that owns the pipeline. And for now, this is what stops the pipeline. Gazprom is trying to set up a new company in Germany, a German company that would be the opera- would be operating the pipeline. And once it's set up, that's when the review by the administrative, by the bureaucracy, by the German bureaucracy will begin to see whether all other conditions of the third energy package and bundling principles are being applied. So it's still a long way to go in terms of the bureaucratic you know, approval that would potentially allow the pipeline to start functioning. Okay. And I believe that subsidiary has been established. That's just yes, where we're at so. right yeah. now. Um, yeah. in the process. Like, I, and I just, I, I wanted to address Nord Stream 2 a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think that we've done that here. Okay. So s- switching gears and maybe I kind of buried the lead here, mm-hmm. but obviously I, I think a big question on everyone's mind is, you know, how likely is a broader conflict at this point and what happens to gas moving through Ukraine if, if war breaks out? I mean, just, could it be rerouted? Mm-hmm. I mean, what happens in that case? So again. It's not in my wheelhouse to predict, you know, how likely the co- conflict is going to be. It's more likely than, you know, we, we thought maybe a month ago it would be. So we still see, you know, there's troops uh, on the border. We still see Vladimir Putin saying that they won't uh, invade, assuring President Macron that they wouldn't invade. But the troops are still there. Right. And we see that NATO and the US, they kind of prepare for that possibility. Right. So I don't I don't know, you know, to what extent is it going to be, you know, is there going to be a conflict? To what extent is it going to be a large conflict? Is there going to be just a small incursion? Again, there is smarter people who know much more on that issue than me. Now, hypothetically, you know, I probably don't see Russia cutting off gas completely to Europe because it's its largest market. It's something that could impact Russia's reliability or at least Russia's uh, you know, uh, way that Russia is perceived by others, particularly by China as a customer. So China will look closely on you know, how Russia and if Russia uh, uses gas as a weapon in a way that it could potentially later impact China. So that's that's that. There's also the, the, the issue of some sort of income. For Russian budget, the income from gas is not that large. It's around 6-7%, but it is significant income for Gazprom, which is owned by Russia 
in majority. So that's something that that will be considered. And there's also, you know, the fact that Gazprom is quite loyal to its largest consumers and customers that have been loyal to Gazprom and Russia, Russia to an extent as well, particularly that goes for Germany and Turkey. Germany has been relying on Russian gas to a great extent, and that is likely to continue. Uh, Gazprom has delivered to Germany in terms of larger volumes than even, I think, compared to 2019 in 2021, or at least comparable. So it's not like Gazprom did not make sure that it provides its largest customer in Europe with with a significant supply. It didn't fill its own storage there, but that's a different story, right? And same for Turkey. It supplied it with significant amount of uh, natural gas. What's Important to say is that supply has been mostly routed via new pipelines that do not cross Central Eastern Europe. That was Nord Stream 1 for Germany and Turkish Stream and Blue Stream for Turkey. And that's quite important. So you see that kind of, you know, preference of Gazprom for sending its natural gas supplies through its own pipelines. There is also the supply that went to China, but it is not significant in this context because the supply that goes to China is from fields where that do not feed into European supply at all. They really, you know, dedicated to Chinese demand. And there is no crisscross. Gazprom cannot decide whether it sends those supplies are sent to Europe or China. So China kind of is not part of this equation. Gazprom doesn't have the arbitrage on that gas. But in terms of the other pipelines that go directly to Turkey and Germany, that's where Gazprom has put majority of its gas supply. The uh, Ukrainian transit has been impacted. So Gazprom has even paid for transit that it contracted but uh, via Ukraine, but has sent fewer volumes. So it was willing to just pay the fee and not send gas through that specific transit with Ukraine, kind of showing its dislike to the situation and that it would prefer if Nord Stream 2 was operational. Some things that I've been reading in terms of, you know, what's the possibilities, what, what could happen in terms of, you know, gas if a conflict really takes place. Uh, some of the most likely ones is that, you know, pipelines in Ukraine could be destroyed, right? And that could basically destroy the ability of transit via Ukraine, period. Now, whether they would be destroyed by the conflict or or intentionally or so on, uh, we probably won't, you know, we probably will hear different version if that ever happens. And you can probably come up with the idea who says who destroyed what on each side. But this is a, a very real possibility. What can replace it? LNG is, it will be central for that matter, part of it and a lot of it actually could be U.S. LNG, that it's either on the spot basis or could be redirected from other markets. And the reason why you know I'm talking about U.S. LNG is because U.S. LNG has that special characteristic that many other suppliers do not provide, which is a high level of flexibility. Most of U.S. LNG that is even on the contract, but it's bought on a contract basis, it's FOB. So it's free on board, mm-hmm. meaning as soon as the you know, buyer picks it up, 
it can do with it what he or she pleases. So uh, the LNG can, can be brought to the destination that it was first intended, but it can also be sold on a spot market and uh, brought somewhere else. And truly what we have recently really seen is this kind of reversal, right, of what was happening in the fall of 2021. In the fall of 2021, we had, you know, we see, we saw this high prices going up in Europe, going up in, in Asia uh, in preparation for winter, and Asia beat Europe to it. Part of it is, well, they do not have hardly any (laughs) pipeline supply. And countries like Japan and Korea, they do not have pipeline supply. So they will, in order to fill up their storage and make sure that they secure for winter, they will probably beat any price that Europe pays. It's quite important in terms of their energy security. And we saw that playing out. But as the storage in Asia filled up, and actually, the beginning of winter was warmer than on av- than average, while in Europe prices kept you know going up, and winter started really cold. On top of this, we've seen this reversal of LNG cargos that were going to Asia going back to Europe, because that's where the pricing was better. That's where the money was to be made. And in uh, January, 46% of LNG that was brought to Europe was actually US LNG. The flexibility that the, you know, that the contracting with US LNG providers allows is extremely important, not only for you know, buyers and sellers, but also for the development of the global market, kind of much deeper market, much more flexible market, where Cargos can be moved depending on market conditions, and we've seen that happening. How much, whether this entire Russian supply could be filled by U.S. or any other LNG cargos, well, that's a very difficult task. Uh, We actually have a paper that will come out literally in the next few days that looks at those options in very detail. So I definitely, you know, invite everybody to kind of look at the Bacon Institute website for that in the next several days. And I will provide also a link for that as it comes out. Okay, great. Yeah, very interesting. And I think you you just kind of you kind of segued into my my last question nicely there. And you I think you already sort of answered it. But I mean, I was going to ask if this this standoff is a good situation. I mean, for for lack of a better term, obviously, is this a good situation for for LNG suppliers to find themselves? And I mean, particularly for those in America who have, you know, tried to step up their presence on the continent in recent years. It's hard to talk about a good situation, uh, right? Because of a standoff. What the standoff does, it kind of create, you know, pushes the realization that Russia, especially in Western Europe, which kind of has had this idea of Russia as a very commercial or Gazprom as a commercial enterprise, it pushes this kind of idea a little bit away and towards more of a careful consideration of Russia as a partner on which one could always rely. And I think that's something that that will push countries like Germany to consideration of maybe the fact that they need an LNG terminal 
and not only storage part of which was con- which was controlled by Gazprom, that they need an LNG terminal that will allow them the flexibility of bringing additional supply that will be outside of Russia, especially especially if not only Nord Stream One but Nord Stream Two starts functioning. If there is no additional supply, if there is no you know this credible threat. That somebody else could bring a, a significant amount of gas to Germany and to Europe. Well, then Russia has a even more, you know, dominant position in that market. So, I think this the, the standoff kind of really, you know, I think shaking up the the idea of Russia as a as a commercial actor. We've seen this already, you know, no, even, even IEA has kind of accused Russia of kind of playing the geopolitical game and, and so on. So we've seen this, this, this change. We've seen actually Germany has been starting to think, has started to think about LNG terminals a little bit more. So it, it, it could play out different. We have seen that Europe actually has now changed it, its taxonomy to include both natural gas and nuclear as part of decarbonization effort, that's actually hugely important for LNG producers because what it means, it means that Europe will not stop cold Turkey bringing in natural gas. But now, actually, there are ways in which natural gas can help decarbonizing some of the European countries. And that, again, it's not might not be as much the Western European part, but in the center, Central Eastern Europe, including Germany, there's a huge amount of coal that's being burned that replaced by natural gas could actually have huge decarbonization, that could have, LNG could have a huge decarbonization value. So in that way, I think that's uh, something that's important. Now, to what extent a standoff like this under you know, Russia's dominant position as supplier could actually create demand destruction is another story. Because if countries begin to think of natural gas as, as something that's not doesn't provide a security of supply, that could mean that they may be moving to other options. And it could be renewables, right? But it also could be coal. And particularly where you need a stream of energy that's that's not interruptible, right? So it's not intermittent. Well, then coal is probably the better options, and it doesn't have to be only Europe. We can think of this about you know of this also in the developing world. So I think what's important at this moment is that this you know for LNG provider providers is to seize it as something that can suggest that, especially for, for Europe, uh, US one, can suggest the decarbonization value of LNG, while also supporting the stand that this is something that has a secure supply. And US LNG providers are uniquely positioned for that because these are not government but private companies, they work based on market conditions, not based on geopolitical aspirations of a government and not at government, every government whim. It's not, it's very difficult to change their course of actions. And the gas that's LNG that's currently produced in the US, they the, the LNG producers actually are increasingly keen on making it less 
carbon intensive. So through different offsets, through CCS, there is an increased interest in making sure that there is as much of decarbonization value, the value that LNG can provide as possible. And if it replaces coal, well, then, then that's additional decarbonization benefit right there. Yeah, there's there's certainly um, a lot to uh, to consider yes. when it comes to all this. I think we could we could chat about this um, all day, but I, I think that that does it for now. And um, th- you know, thanks again for joining us. Uh, we really appreciated having you for today's episode. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, and thanks to all of you for listening to NGI's Hub and Flow podcast. Until next time. Dependable data drives informed business decisions. Trust NGI to provide your natural gas and LNG data for North America. If your business requires daily, weekly, or midweek pricing data, forward curves, or flow data, NGI has a reliable product suite to support you. Visit natgasintel.com backslash services to understand what we have to offer and how we can help you and your business today. Thank you for listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast today. We encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, and please do share it with your colleagues. A trusted provider of natural gas news, data, and pricing information for North America, NGI offers subscription-based products. Please visit natgasintel.com if you are interested in NGI and our services. If you would like to dive deeper into this subject, additional resources are available on our website as well. Just visit natgasintel.com and click on the resources tab to find the podcast page. Mm -hmm.